motions for discovery 22 years ago. I filed a motion for discovery when I went pro se 15 years ago. If trying to get what you should have been given in the beginning is a fishing expedition, then I'm the captain of that uh, fishing vessel. And uh, this is the USS FreeJamieSnow.com, and I'm, I'm the captain of that. Snow Files, Episode 35, State's Response to the Discovery Motion. The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. By now, hopefully you have listened to the Snow Files episodes 32 through 34, and if you have, you should have a pretty good understanding of the issues surrounding the motion and what we are fighting for. In this final episode, before the hearing on September 8th, we are going through the state's response to that motion, page by page, and we have a robust discussion. Hopefully, this will give you some insight into the state's posture. Spoiler alert, they are going to fight it tooth and nail. But let's start with Jamie's thoughts. I just want to give a couple of my uh, thoughts on the, the state's motion in response to our motion for discovery. One of the things that really annoys me is on page two, they cite that no fewer than 25 judges have considered previous re- uh, proceedings and the conviction has either been upheld or certiorari denied at every level. So the thing that I was thinking about that, and this kind of came to me, yesterday was that the state wants to fight that 25 judges blah 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 statement and what really came to me was they didn't trust any of those 25 judges and I don't think it's 25 judges either but they clearly did not trust those judges to render an honest and legitimate ruling in the case because they withheld so much evidence they didn't just withhold it from me they didn't just withhold it from the jury, they withheld it from those judges as well. It's really annoying that they say that. That's one thing that I was thinking about. You know, and then you go to you go to page 9, paragraph 16. They talk about one of the cases that my attorney cited, People versus Fitzgerald, and it says that it stands for the proposition that trial court judges should be incredibly cautious when exercising their inherent authority to allow discovery in post-conviction matters because the post-conviction proceedings afford only limited review and because there would exist in those proceedings a potential for abuse of the discovery process. We've never abused the discovery process. The only people that have abused the discovery process in this case is the state. The McLean County State Attorney's Office. They didn't turn the stuff over when they were supposed to turn it over pre-trial. They didn't turn it over when I went pro se, and they were ordered to turn it over. And now they're trying to fight to turn the stuff over now. So it's just annoying that they would fight those things. And then on the very last page, page 10, they say uh, defendants are forever engaging in fishing expeditions. The whole the whole thing is the state asserts that the defendant's request for essentially unlimited discovery is exactly the sort of practice that should be limited because such requests result in the discovery process being abused.
refused over a course of years without even filing a motion for leave of the court to file successful post-conviction under the Post-Conviction Act. Yet it says the defendant is forever engaging in fishing expedition. Well, my response to that is we filed motions for discovery 22 years ago. I filed a motion for discovery when I went pro se 15 years ago. If trying to get what you should have been given in the beginning is a fishing expedition, then I'm the captain of that uh, fishing vessel. And uh, this is the USS Free Jamie and I'm, I'm the captain of that. But, but, it's, but it's not a fishing expedition. We are fighting to get what we were supposed to get in the beginning. After I read this motion, I realized that just status quo with this guy. And he's just following in the in lockstep with the people that came before him and doing the same thing that everybody else has done. And I go back to what I started with and saying that they clearly didn't trust any of those 25 judges because they withheld that evidence from them. They didn't trust my 12 jurors because they withheld the evidence from them. So I think the number one is the best number that we should think about, you know, and, and that being that hopefully the judge that we have now will be the first judge that will render a decision in this case, regardless of how he rules, whether he grants me relief or he doesn't grant me relief at some point down the road, my hope is that he will be the first one to render a decision in this case after he has been fully and accurately informed of all the evidence in the case. And I really honestly believe that if we're given the opportunity to just lay everything out on the table for this judge, he's going to be like a lot of you guys are. He's going to see that this case is just a case that was built on a house of cards. And that's really what my hope is, and that's kind of what I feel about this motion. I think the motion is disingenuous. It's kind of offensive to me when they talk about trying to abuse the discovery uh, uh, process. We're not trying to abuse it. We're just trying to get what we were entitled to in the beginning. So that's how I feel about it. And like everything, I'm really curious to hear what everyone else had to say about it. So I appreciate y'all tuning in and sticking with us. And uh, hopefully something really good is going to come down the line here uh, soon for us. So keep us in your thoughts and prayers. In the state's response in the procedural posture, it states, on January 16, 2001, McLean County jury properly returned a verdict of guilty, and the defendant was convicted of the 1991 murder of Bill Little. There's an A and a B subset. During the trial, the jury heard testimony that the defendant had admitted his involvement in the murder of Bill Little to more than a dozen individuals. Tam, is this accurate? No. No. That is not accurate. They're including everybody, and of course, they're all hearsay witnesses, but not confession witnesses. He's saying admitted his involvement in the murder of Bill Little to more than a dozen individuals. That's not true. So they're including Dawn Roberts, who said she was at a party and uh, Jamie poured a beer out and gave a toast to Billy, like a rest in peace thing, which she was actually talking about Billy McWhorter, not Bill Little. 
that's not a confession. (laughs) They're talking about Karen, who we know changed her story and said that he was at the end of all of it. After the story changed so many times, she says that she saw him outside of her and Mark McCallan's apartment and he had on a hat and there was a car behind him. That is not a confession. In fact, Karen's was like double hearsay and actually got discredited in appellate court because that shouldn't have even been let in. So we basically have confession witnesses would be Bruce Rowland, who said that Jamie told him. And then we have Ed Palumbo, who, I mean, that was a paper thing. So there's not really any confession there, right? I mean, he's passing him in a car, and then he says, I read about you in the paper. That was his testimony. And then you have Ed Hammond. Who else, Ray? There's the Stephen Shield, Kevin Shaw, and a couple of I, they, they don't total to more than a dozen. Actually, Jamie came face to face and said, I, I did this. Just one thing to note about the discovery motion and getting this information is the information that could have been there. Other people whenever supposedly were in the room whenever Jamie made his confession. If Jamie had the original discovery or his attorney had it or if it was just used properly, he could take who else was supposedly in the room whenever all this confession was being made and all that information could be used to to dispute or or challenge these witnesses or or impeach their testimony at trial or in, in any appeals. That's the big deal with getting the discovery. It could be used to work on all these witnesses and just wipe all these out. I mean, we have affidavits by most of them that said that wasn't what I said or information about deals and stuff like that. But that's the point. This wasn't available to Jamie at the time of his appeal or when he went pro se and the trial. That's a great point. If he had all of the discovery, then he would know that there was correspondence between Bruce Rowland and Tina Griffin before he was even in prison about this matter where he's asking for a deal, talking about reward money. He also would have known that after he was convicted, there was correspondence concerning Hammond's downward departure in a federal sentence. So all of this information that we found through FOIA is no doubt there. Do you agree with that, Ray? Do you think it's in those documents, all this stuff? It's got to be, right? Exactly. Like I said, any information, if couple of these. I think uh, Dan Tanas or whatever his name was, uh, they were sitting around a fire, you know, and Jamie talked about this robbery, but there were other people there. If Jamie had the information, uh, all the reports, uh, he could have had investigators talk to other parties that should have overheard the same conversation these people are are talking about. And that would not only uh, wipe out the witness against Jamie, but 
all these other people that were supposedly there in the area could have heard the same conversation and didn't hear it or heard Jamie say something different. That's what they used to, like I said, to challenge a witness of what they're saying. And that wasn't available to him. And Dan Tanaz recanted, by the way. Uh, yes, he did. But now he recanted. But there have been other people at this same picnic or barbecue, whatever it was, were there. Jamie didn't know who else was there whenever he supposedly made this statement. And Dan has, has recanted his testimony. But Jamie would have half a dozen other witnesses that were there also didn't hear him. Right. The issue is that the state's response is based on the original verdict. So they're ignoring everything that you've discovered through FOIA, all this information that's never been heard by a jury, and they're basing it all on the original trial. They're ignoring everything we know now about these witnesses. So they're stacking a bunch of discredited witnesses up, claiming to have a slam dunk. It seems like none of this stuff, because you were asking for discovery, but a lot of this you found already on your own, and it's still never been heard by a jury. Exactly. The stuff that Tam and I have found through FOIA requests is what Jamie is seeking now. And the state's not basing any of their decisions or any of their responses on information that we currently know. Right. They're going back and just rehashing that said more than 12 people said he confessed. Well, they're not throwing out exactly what those 12 people said. And the information that Jamie had available to him doesn't necessarily impeach what these people were saying. They got one side of the story and they didn't investigate it fully, you know, or didn't make what else they found. I mean, if, if there was five people sitting around this barbecue who heard Jamie say he did it, I'm sure they would have marched all five of them into court. Right. And the, and the other one came and the, and the other four who were there didn't hear it, wouldn't vouch for it, wouldn't swear to it. For whatever reason, they didn't present them. We have witnesses like that we found in FOIA, too, that we have to question why the state never presented them. Now, the state knows that we already have this information because of the FOIA request. They know it's out there. So what is their fear of allowing this discovery now? Is there more? What what have we not seen? Because in the most conservative estimate, Jamie received 864 pages of discovery. We know this. We know that, like I said, in a a conservative estimate, we've received 5,000 documents in FOIA, right? Some of those could be duplicates. A lot of them could be duplicates, but we're looking between three and 5,000. Yet there's 7,000 documents, you know, in that stack from the subpoena from the ISP and the BPD. Now, what else is in there? Because we know from the motion that was filed, confessions by others to the crime, picture files. I mean, what, what, right. uh, identification of other suspects. That's quite a list. There's 18 items there that were new to Tara. So what else is in there? I mean, look at all the information you've already discovered based on all of your hard work with these FOIA requests, and it's all favorable to Jamie. So why are they hiding the rest? There's obviously a motive here. I don't know. They need to turn it over, though. In Part B of the procedural posture, it says during the trial, 
The jury also heard eyewitness identification testimony that the defendant was fleeing from the scene of the murder moments after the gunshots were heard. That sounds so dramatic to me. I mean, first of all, there were no eyewitnesses. There's no eyewitness to this crime. The only people that know is the person who actually shot and if there was someone else with that person. All three of them did not have the same description of the person. And then they say fleeing from the scene of the murder moments after gunshots were heard. Well, the backfire of Danny Martinez's car turned into gunshots. Gunshots were heard. There were two cops standing across the street looking. And Danny Martinez was in the parking lot. And they're saying that the person came out. Both of the police officers that were watching the scene said nobody came out that door. So how is that even accurate? Ray, anything to add? I still go back to the same point. Had Jamie had the information, he could use it to impeach things that Martinez and uh, Lunas had said. You know, we have information that the, the memo that we found that kind of slipped through in one of the FOIAs that, that says the police, the police themselves said they were standing at where Luna was and he couldn't identify people he knew were at the scene. Again, this is information that, that was kept out, uh, continues to be kept out, and that's what, that's what we need to get our hands on. Everything that Jamie's motion is seeking to find out right now. It was withheld. Right. It was completely withheld. It was all withheld, you know, and that, (laughs) that's the point. It was infuriating. It's infuriating because it was withheld from him. And this is not an accident because there are just too many things. Just, just from what we found, they accidentally left all of this exculpatory evidence out that would lead to some type of proper defense for Jamie. They would have never been able to bring these witnesses up had had his defense attorney had this information. No way. Well, I just want to point out from reading that just how succinct the state can just type out these two little sentences and present to the entire world that this conviction is credible. All they have to do is write these two little sentences that he confessed to 12 people and he was identified running from the scene of the murder moments after gunshots were heard. So all of that is false. Of course, Jamie never confessed to anybody that he was there. There's not even one confession that makes any sense at all where He's saying, I did it. I shot Bill Little. You know, every single confession is somehow convoluted and ambiguous and doesn't make sense. So there's not even one direct confession. And then with the the gunshots, there was a police officer standing right there. And even up until 2020, he has insisted there was no gunshots there and that there was nobody fleeing the scene. This is how the state 
keeps a lid on this for 20 years now is all they have to do is go out to the public and say, oh, we have this and we have that and makes him look so bad. It's like you guys were saying, it's just infuriating because there's 20 years of this back and forth and all of this agonizing court motions trying to get the information out there to the public. But the state's only job is just to keep repeating these two sentences. And, you know, it almost seems like open and shut. It's a very hard to overcome these kind of blanket statements. It's also very reading that for the first time as, you know, a new person to this case. First, it made me laugh, but then it sucked really bad, you know, to read that and realize that they could do that. So, you know, I'm sure other people who are listening, you know, and on this case, you know, the first time in the last couple of years are just as surprised. Sure. It's easy to see why the state makes this argument. I mean, as you said, both of these statements are false, but the discovery motion threatens to prove that. So, of course, they're going to fight against it. So what about these 25 judges, Bruce? Yeah, it says on page two, and Jamie mentions this as well, the state insinuates that no fewer than 25 judges have considered previous proceedings on the conviction and have all upheld or either denied motions from Jamie. I find this number to be absurd. It's just like stacking all these discredited witnesses up. It's a tactic they're using, but 25 judges have not reviewed Jamie's case. No, and he's including this, I mean, every motion. Well, it went to the Supreme Court, right? So there's nine judges there and they just didn't take the case. I mean, how often does does the Supreme Court take a case? Right. And some of these are small procedural (laughs) issues that Jamie was asking for, and they're including that into the 25 judges. So that to me is just absolutely absurd. Like Leslie just said, as they did with their two statements above, they're trying to just write it off in one quick you know, explanation. Well, we got 25 judges, so it's done. Yeah. I wonder how many judges Juan Rivera was before. He had three trials, three juries found him guilty. He was innocent and DNA proved it. That's a lot of people. Right. They use the same arguments in the Ryan Ferguson case too. How many judges and how many people had reviewed his case and everybody knows he's absolutely innocent. He's free, of course, now, but they use the same tactics in so many cases. They just try to stack it all up and say, look at how many people reviewed this. And a lot of it was a a 10 second signature that somebody just wrote off on a piece of paper and they claimed a judge reviewed the case. Right. And then you get, when you get to the higher courts, you're having clerks review and making recommendations. Right. A judge never even sees it. But when you make statements like this in a response, It sure does sound like 25 judges reviewed this case and Jamie's already had his appeals and it's all done and it's final when we all know that it's not. Just trying to put that big number out there. I'm not sure how you can. I mean, we could go through case by case and every motion by motion, but I think it would get pretty boring. I mean, a lot of this is when I'm reading through it, it's just small procedural things, a lot of it. And like you said, when it went to the Supreme Court, they're adding all those justices to the number. They just neglected to hear the case. It's important to point out that Jamie has never even had an evidentiary hearing, much less a new trial. So these witnesses have never been heard by a judge. This evidence has never been heard by a judge. There has not been any good, thorough 
hearing so somebody could actually hear from these people and determine their credibility. Right. If you enjoy Snow Files, please give us a quick rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This will help Jamie's story get out to the masses. Visit snowfiles.net and click on Rate Show. And while you're there, leave us a voicemail that may be used on the show and check out our cool Snow Files merch. In this uh, response as well, and Tam, you wrote on this too, you might want to elaborate on it. They're cl- they're talking about all the pages that have been issued, and they're trying to say there's been a lot of duplicates and that everything's really been turned over. What's the truth about all this? What was turned over to Jamie and what was turned over pre-trial was the, I think it was 864. They mentioned that that's what was turned over. That was turned over. So then we have all of these other, they're trying to include the the grand jury transcripts, which are, I think, I, 497 pages or something like that. I counted them. 471, so, you had noted. Not that okay. it matters. Okay. So they're trying, so they're including those. Then he says there were 864 discovery exhibits identified. And then he says there were over a thousand actual pages of documentation involved in the discovery tendered to the defendant. Okay, but you have seven thousand. Right. <laughs> so <Wow>. what is your point? <laughs> they're trying to make this point about these pages, but they're completely ignoring everything that's never been seen. Mm-hmm. And then, and, and I see what you're saying because he goes on about the duplicates. So they did this, I guess. It's called a uh, uh, McLean County State's Attorney Science, where they are saying that they take out some random samples. The following is how many times those same exact documents appear within the subpoena return. And then they go discovery exhibit one. That was there at least four times. Exhibit 201. That was there at least eight times. And they go and they go on. That doesn't even mean anything to me. Does that mean anything? To y'all, Leslie, what do you think? You're a numbers head. I couldn't believe how lazy they were that they <laughs> they had like 8,000 pages. So they were like, let me just go in here and take random samples of the um, <laughs> how many duplicates there were and how many blacked outs there were. And then, you know, hand that over to the judge and act like that was substantial. I mean, that kind of defeats the purpose if it's that bad that it's all duplicates. And it's so pervasive. Then why don't they just give it to you? And that's exactly what I said. Why don't they just turn it over then? If it's all duplicates, let us go through it. Why not? It's all duplicates. It's all duplicates. Then give it to us. If they're it's basically, have. they're admitting that they didn't read every single page. That's exactly what they did. They're saying Lauren submitted this list of stuff that's really ambiguous. And she she doesn't even have page numbers to reference it. But we've got all the pages here. And there's just too many for us to even read through. So we did a random sample. So they don't know what's in it either. So what are they even defending? And the page numbers is a good point. Ray, you might want to chime in on this. A lot of these documents that we found that are exculpatory do not have page numbers on them. So how are we supposed to? He's just making a big deal about them not being referenced. I'm very confused with the state's whole response, for one thing. I mean, if they're citing these exhibits that they're saying duplicates and uh, copied three times or received 
that many copies of it, but they don't attach it to their to their response of what they're actually talking about. I'm a little bit confused even with half the things. He, he almost makes some of Jamie's argument when he says in the initial proceedings, they were given, Jamie was given eight, 800 and whatever documents. And then he, he starts talking about a subpoena in 2016. The only subpoena that I know for records was for the forensic stuff to Bloomington and to the state police. Now, about the same time is when we, we were filing our suit and the attorney representing had gone to Bloomington and said, we'll give you one more chance to produce stuff, properly redacted and whatever, and, and we'll be done. We want the tapes and all. And that's when he came up and had a disc. We didn't get the disc, but the, the attorney got the production that was come out. And that probably had the 7,000 pages, I think, they're referring to, which was a, which was a FOIA request by us, basically. And in that, if you remember, we would get our first FOIA response. And then uh, we got the second, came across again, and then information was repeated in our second FOIA response. And then whenever Matt Topic put it through for the, like the final, give us everything you have and we won't sue you, basically. They repeated everything they sent you and I, Tam, to him. And there definitely were duplicates. We had Pilo's initial report. We probably, I'm guessing one of these exhibits that they refer to is like Pilo's report. We've probably gotten Pilo's report three, four times at least in different FOIA requests, the same report over and over again. And I think that's what the state here is actually referring to. And there's, there's a lot of confusion in their response, put it that way. So you feel like they are folding in this FOIA lawsuit that we went through and everything that we asked for and all of that, you feel like they're folding that in to the response to this motion. Exactly. Their response to, to Jamie's motion is very generic. It comes out, like, like we already said, you know, more than a dozen witnesses. More than 25 judges. They don't have any, any real information down there. And I think they are mixing up what was given to us in FOIA requests is saying this was given as part of discovery. I mean, their own, about the previous discovery, they said they got the initial proceedings got 864 document discovery exhibits. And then to a subpoena, there was a hundred hundred pages of hard copy documents, and that's what we got. That's what Matt Topic got, and a CD containing multiple uh, PDF files with seven thousand seven hundred documents. So they say they give them eight hundred and sixty four, but there was more than seven thousand given. wasn't given to him; it was given to us, and that's and and ours obviously is all redacted, so. All available information, it wasn't made available to us. We would have names and stuff like that. And that's what Jamie needs. And I think maybe they're trying to pull that in because we're closer to the case, obviously. But honestly, this could have been a reporter from New Mexico. And Jamie would have never had access to any of this. Right. So you can't. And that's why we made it clear 
in the beginning of all of this that the FOIA lawsuit, what we found is, you know, we really tried to clarify that that's completely separate from a discovery motion. When someone is granted discovery, there are not redactions in discovery. This is information that you need. And there's uh, what they called Brady information, where she said in the first 519 pages of that 864 documents that she was complying with Brady. I requested to buy copies of that 864 documents. First, I bought the certification pages. So this is where Tina Griffin, under oath, certifies that this is the discovery. This is this is what she's turning over now. This is back in 1999. These pages are from back in 1999, where she's turning over pre-trial, where she's turning over all of this stuff. So I got those pages. Then I requested to buy the 864, right? So we're just going to have, you know, redacted or not, we're going to have a clean copy of everything that they turned over. That was my goal. But from that, the clerk wrote me back and she was like, we're not sure about turning these over. We think it's the case is pending or something like that. And I said, it's not pending. I wrote her back. I said, it has been adjudicated. It was adjudicated in 2001. This case is closed. The only thing that's pending right now is a DNA motion. So she writes back the next day and she quotes, she basically says, this is what I was told. Due to pending activity on case, no copies. Also, no clue as to what those exhibit numbers are. Do not have 800 exhibits in the case with an exclamation point. And that's in a quote. So they're like, no copies. <laughs> no. So I don't know what they're doing. I'm Ray, I'm sure this is what we've had we have, right? That that 864 pages. But it's just interesting to me that they were so assertive in their response. Uh, I don't agree with them. I think they're wrong. I think they're wrong to deny me these copies of these 864 pages when I've already ordered everything that she turned over. But one interesting thing, just as a side note, that really, I don't know, it just got me, was when they turn over that, you know, in those letters, they have to explain, for example, they'll have a witness and then they have to explain their chart. This is this is their charges, right? One thing that was interesting to me was Gutierrez had some type of charge. I don't know if it was a burglary or something like that, but he had a charge. And then another thing that got to me was that when she listed Hammond's charges, and that was later, like that was, that was much later. That was a much later. So he came up as a witness, I guess, much, you know, much later, which is not something I thought about because they're all like last minute witnesses. But anyways, when she turned over his, she did not list any of the federal charges, not the bankrupt, not not anything. So it made me wonder as much as she was, she's an officer of the court and went in the court. Now we know she was lying to the court, to the judge, to the jury, to everybody there because of this new information that we found. 
But it's interesting to me that that is a, a certified document. And now we know she knew about those charges, right? Because she was talking about a state deal, right? So she knew about those charges and she didn't list that shit. And I wonder if that means anything legally. Well, it, it's, it's very, very curious uh, about them all, uh, now coming up and saying, because it's uh, something pending, we can't give you those copies. The timing is way off. You know the clerk went to the state attorney's office and says, hey, I got this request. And anybody can guess what was said. Don't send them out. Say we're, if you don't give it for pending charges or pending investigation or, or any, any other kind of reason. I think there's a lot of stuff that had Jamie gotten. Remember, Pistol and Riley got, got a discovery at the beginning. And then Jamie asked for, for the discovery that they got and which he's never, never received. Information that Pistol had, and, and this goes to a different portion of any kind of post-conviction, is Jamie had questioned, why didn't his attorneys find this? Well, maybe his attorneys were given it and just in their incompetency didn't know what to do with it or chose not to do, use it. Or again, it's all just guesswork. I have my suspicions of, of how the case was handled or, or manhandled to get a conviction and I don't know who was on whose side, to be perfectly honest. I think that 864 pages are the 864 pages that that were turned over. Like these right. are the these are the pages that that Tina Griffin turned over. These are the pages that we kept getting. And that 864 pages, I think, are the ones initially in that volume one, volume two, you know, all of that. That's what all of that is, and that's what we got initially. Then we started getting the bits and pieces as we as we honed down. The only the only thing that makes me think that they did not turn over like the really good information that we have against these witnesses is because Skelton didn't use it. And he really went through this case. And it's the same discovery. So that just makes me think, because Skelton didn't use it, that he was not aware of it either. I think he would have taken, for example, Bruce Rowland down with that in court, in Susan's trial, or Ed Hammond. He would have been all over that. I just don't think that it was turned over. I, th I think these 864 pages are the pages that we've always seen. Again, I think there's there's information in those, even in those 864 pages that supposedly were turned over initially. Like I said, there's so much confusion in the in the numbers when you start talking numbers, and we don't know exactly which what they're referring to. And they're very, they hide a lot. I mean, they say about all these exhibits and stuff, but they don't give us the exhibits that they're that they're referring to. Jamie's motion, there's attachments to it. There's attachments of what was the testimony and all that other stuff. And that's, that's what the judge is going to be making his ruling on. So like I said, there's a lot, of, a lot of confusion the way they toss numbers and statements around. And that's exactly why I wanted to order a clean copy of that. And I referenced every single 
reference in Tina Griffin's documents that she said she was turning over. I've referenced those and I said, these are the ones I want because she does list and it ends up to be 864 pages of stuff that she tendered to the defense prior to trial. And it just goes to our our usual suspicion that (laughs) we would ask a question and they would dump all the data on us. It's been a continual fight getting information, getting information out of them, getting information to Jamie, getting information to Jamie's attorneys and stuff. It's it's like pulling teeth with with them, anything they could do to mess it up. So let's move on down to talk about the leads. I know that you said some things about that, Ray. We're on page seven. Again, it's just not clear. When you and I, Tammy, were corresponding to Lauren and we mentioned about the leads coming and how they're redacted and things are blocked out and we would get pages and pages of completely blacked out paper. It's maybe just the, the terminology. The state does have leads, which is it's their law enforcement. I forget what the, the acronym stands for. But Bloomington also has. I don't have it in front of me what they call their their lead sheet. Whenever when somebody calls up and says, "Hey, here's here's some information," and they put down who called it in and what it was they said, and then it has notes about who followed up on it, and who it was assigned to, and stuff like that. On pages like just a Bloomington Police Department document that they make their records on, they put their notes down on stuff like that. The other thing that uh, the state attorney in his response refers to is like the computer information, which would properly be kept. It would be like criminal histories and such like that. And that could be kept out of FOIA. And it was. There was a state computer information. It was redacted. But there was also on the lead crime information, leads, whatever whatever they called it. Uh, I'd have to look it up. But that's what... I keep referring to, I think that's what Lauren may have been referring to, was saying we want the lead sheets, which would help. Again, that would help Jamie to say, here's other information that he could have investigated to uh, go for his defense. So just to clarify, this is item number 12, and it says Supreme Court Rule 412 governs the disclosure of materials by the state during criminal proceedings. That rule, while broad, does have limitations on the materials that are subject to the discovery process, unless it's more specific as to what materials are being referenced by the defendant's motion. The state cannot respond regarding those items and the court cannot rule whether those materials are subject to discovery under a limited basis. And then they start giving examples. So A is an example of the issue relates to this is the fact that there are restrictions on some types of materials that are not subject to disclosure when it comes to documents such as leads. And then there, that's the Illinois Law Enforcement Agency's data system information. So they're talking about leads, like when they did the leads analysis, Ray, which is different than the tips that they got. Is that the distinction that you're making? Yes, exactly. And I I looked it up. We refer to... Bloomington Police Department has a form. It's called Major Case Leads Sheet. 
And that's where they would get their tips and information that was passed on to them. And they'd pencil it in and hand it to a detective or whatever to investigate and close it or follow up on it, as opposed to the law enforcement data system. The data system can be, there's rulings that we can't get that information. It's like I said, it's, it's criminal histories and things like that, intelligence. We were referring to the in-house lead sheets. That was just some of those 7,000 documents that we, I'm sure Jamie didn't get. So in number 13, what they're talking about is the only motion that's before the court is the DNA testing and that other courts have addressed scope of discovery to be afforded to the defendants seeking such testing and have affirmed limitations. So I think this is the core of the argument because what they're saying is that basically that information was given in order for Tara to determine what documents and what information she needed for the DNA motion. That would be anything related to the crime scene, physical evidence, anything like that. To reiterate, she starts going through these 7,000 documents because the ISP and the BPD didn't just turn over the relevant documents to the crime scene as was stated in the subpoena. They just turned over everything. And then they were like, okay, Tara, you go through it. You go through it, you figure it out, and then let us know. You can't make any copies. You can't talk to anybody about what you see. But you do all the hard work of coming down from Chicago over a year's period of time. So we can stand over your shoulder, but you can't make copies. All you can do is take notes, okay? And you find out what those crime scene-related documents are that you need for your DNA motion And then let us know what copies you need, and then we'll let you know if you can have them. So during this process, Tara discovers all of this information that we outlined in those 18 points that were not turned over. Now, she's looking at documents that are not redacted at all. And she takes notes on all of those. And this is where this comes from. This is when she comes and says, we've never seen any of this stuff. What's going on here? So the state is saying, this motion is about DNA. Why is she bringing all of this up? Right? You don't don't need to be judging on that. So Jamie's defense and Jamie, they're supposed to just look the other way and sweep that under the rug and go, well, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You know, I mean, that's not what this motion is about. So it doesn't matter. But it's new information, right? It's new information. And it is a little bit muddy, right? It is a little bit muddy. But the truth is that there are confessions from other people to this crime. People that did not identify Jamie Snow, which has to be a witness, right? one of the witnesses. And we went through all of this and we're not just going to let it go. 
because twice he's tried, he's, he's been given discovery. Uh, once pro se, he should have gotten every bit of those documents. And, but they still kept giving the same 864 exhibits and 30 tapes, right? So this is what they're saying in here that this is about a DNA motion and this is not about this other thing. So we just need to ignore this and look at the DNA motion. Now, they're also saying if the defendant asserts that he is unable to plead and prove the proper chain of custody, because the evidence at issue has been in safekeeping of the state or the clerk of the circuit court, the trial court may allow limited discovery in appropriate cases. And I loved what Jamie said about this issue as far as when they start talking about how this discovery process has been abused and how we have to limit it due to abuse because he makes it very clear and he he's right i agree with him that the state has abused the discovery process this is not jamie and his defense team abusing it the state has abused it because they're using their authority and their power to withhold information and it's incredible to me that after all of these years, none of these people are the same people that did this in the first place. But yet they're going to hang on to that. They're going to hang on to it. And it's just incredible to me that they know this information is there and they're just going to keep fighting it. I know that I should not be surprised. I've read enough cases and seen a lot of shit that goes down. But it's just incredible to me that they would go out publicly and just be like, no, you can't have them. It's like the testing, right? You know, the exoneration project will pay for it, but no, you're not going to get it. It's not going to happen. We're going to keep using McLean County taxpayer dollars to fight every single thing that you want, even stuff that should have been given to you in the first place. And that's where the problem is. I mean, the final argument and the conclusion here with the response from the state is that they say that post-conviction discovery needs to be limited and that judges need to use caution when granting these motions. There's a point to be made there that defendants who have received all of the discovery they're supposed to receive and the state has properly given them all that information, some defendants could go on fishing expeditions, as they call it, seeking out information that they already have or they just go on an endless search. This is not the case in Jamie's situation. It's disingenuous to say that. He's only asking for information that's been withheld from him from the beginning. And then he went pro se and they withheld it again. And the funny thing I think about this response is they use a case, Daily vs. Fitzgerald. In that case, if I recall, the defendant was asking to depose new witnesses and the judge granted it. And the state said, whoa, 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 you can't do that. You can't depose new witnesses. You know, that's beyond the scope of what you can do. And the judge says, I can use my discretion. Well, in the end, the judge got overruled. This case is irrelevant to Jamie. He's only asking for case information that's already available. He's not asking to seek out new information, depose new witnesses. I mean, they're using cases that are completely irrelevant to Jamie's case to make their argument. 
that's a really good point. And, and Lauren makes that very clear in her motion. Crystal clear, in fact. She says something like, to be clear, we are not asking for new information. We are not asking for new information. We are asking for information that should have been disclosed pre-trial and again in 2007 when Jamie went pro se. I mean, that's why this whole thing is infuriating because their argument doesn't match the case. And I think Ray's point that their response is generic is really on point because they're not identifying the actual situation with Jamie's case. They're just making generic statements, you know, typical responses, and they're not highlighting what's really going on here in Jamie's case. I just hope that the judge sees this for what it is. It would be nice to have a judge that didn't just fall in line like they've done all along. Right. Jamie's basically sitting there saying, hey, can I have the discovery that I'm entitled to from the beginning and also that I requested when I went pro se? That's all I'm asking for. It seems, I mean, it's really, it seems cut and dry to us. It's really simple when you lay it out that way. But obviously, the state's going to do everything they can to fight it. It'll be an interesting hearing. I think it's uh, it. It's important what you said, too, is none of the people involved today had anything to do with the case in the beginning. And I think that goes along with the culture we have and the current justice system and the with prosecutors' offices. I think that they just circle the wagons, and that's the current culture we have. And I really think that's a problem today. But it's just something we have to deal with, and Jamie certainly deals with it every day. Well, if this... <laughs> response from the state was any indication as to how oral arguments are going to go. I really don't think that they're going to have much more to say than what's already in this. It really seems like this was put together a little haphazardly, a little rushed, a little desperate. You know, I don't think they know the information as good as Jamie does. We do Jamie's attorney. So I am really interested in seeing their oral arguments and hearing it. Um, But I can almost guarantee we won't hear anything new than what the state already published here. And we just want everybody that is able to come to that hearing on September 8th at 1.30 at the McLean County Law and Justice Center in Bloomington, Illinois. We have an event page set up on Facebook and it's linked to all of our Facebook pages. So on Snowfiles, Snowfiles podcast, I don't remember the exact, I don't think you can put a URL on the, on the link, but we'll link it again in the Snowfiles podcast site as well. You can find it. It's a big old graphic with a lot of red in it that says something like 8,000 documents are missing hearing, (laughs) which is kind of juvenile, but you know, that's what it is. (laughs) Where are these 8,000 documents? We, we really need your support. Laura needs your support. Jamie's family uh, needs your support. They were in that town for a very long time during that trial and all through all of this and it's really been a roller coaster for them as well. And in the beginning, Jamie and his family had little to no support. And they need to know that we're here for them and that we believe in their father's innocence. 
and that we're not going to stop until he walks out of there. And you can show that by showing up. If you can't show up, share the case. Bring as many people as you can with you if you can show up. We need to let them know that we're listening and we're watching what is happening in McLean County. So anybody that can come, please do. In this episode, we review how for over 21 years now, the McLean County State's Attorney's Office has fought giving any relief to Jamie in this case. They have fought evidence of witnesses recanting, testing the physical evidence with new technologies, and now they fight turning over documents they had a duty to turn over pre-trial and again in 2007 when Jamie went pro se. They argue this is a DNA motion and not the appropriate time to argue about discovery. They argue this issue has been before 25 judges, and they cite case law that doesn't even apply to Jamie's case. It's abundantly clear that it's business as usual in the McLean County State's Attorney's Office. But we fight, and we will never stop fighting until Jamie is free. If you have any information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. The tip line is free and confidential. On Wednesday, September 8th at 1.30 p.m. Central Time at the McLean County Law and Justice Center in Bloomington, Illinois, a new judge will hear arguments about the issues of the state turning over the documents Jamie was entitled to in the first place. Jamie, his family, and his attorneys need your support. If you can make it to the hearing, please do. And bring who you can with you. We know there is a mask mandate. And also, please leave your phone in the car. They no longer allow them in the courthouse. There will be no posted podcasts on that date, but we're going to do our best to go live after the hearing to give everyone an update. We'll be there, and we'll take tons of pics. That's next time on Snow Files.